Bonjour, hello, you are listening to the Voyager Express, the podcast of the North American Voyager Council, recorded in Anishinaabe Waking on the Red River. Welcome to the first episode of the Voyager Express, the podcast for the North American Voyager Council. Uh, This episode, we are going to be reading from David Thompson's narrative. We're specifically reading chapter 22 of the Tyrell edition of David Thompson's travels. Uh, Chapter 22 talks about the Plains uh, Indians, as he says, um, and we're going to really, we're reading this because of the Sakamapi account. So Sakamapi was a a quite old uh, Cree person that was living in a camp of Pagan or Blackfeet uh, at the time that Thompson was spending the winter there. And it seems as though uh, Thompson spent a lot of time with Sakamapi and managed to get a good chunk of his life story written down. And because Sakamapi was quite an elder in the end of the 18th century, his account really starts from before contact with Europeans and goes all the way to kind of the post-smallpox era. Um, it's a really interesting look at what life was like on the um, kind of northern plains and foothills of the Rockies uh, before and kind of during our uh, colonization and the fur trade. So uh, I feel like it's a great account to start our, you know, primary sources on the podcast with, uh, kind of getting a before the fur trade and during the fur trade account. Um, we're reading Terrell's version, not because it is the best one, but because it is the one that is available online. So uh, I'll have a link to archive.org's version of uh, Terrell's edition of David Thompson's narrative. It was published by the Champlain Society uh, in the 1960s. Um, you know, David Thompson made a couple stabs at writing this book, but he never finished. And so a couple people tried to edit together Thompson's writings into a book, um, both, you know, making choices as editors do, um, uh, some more transparent than others. I'd highly recommend if you're interested in this, um, of David Thompson and his writing style to just pick up the William Moreau editions, which just came out in 2009 and are much kind of closer. They're, they're much more transparent about where, uh, why Moreau is making the choices he is, and there's great footnotes in it. So yeah, highly recommend that. If you're going to do further reading in David Thompson, we're just using the Terrell one because it's available online. Uh, okay. I also want to take this opportunity to talk about the NABC Fall Gathering. Um, we've got uh, 2022, if you're listening to this in the distant future, we're doing 2022's Fall Gathering uh, virtually again. Uh, and the presentations we're going to have several on Friday, Friday, November 4th. Uh, we've got at 7 p.m. Pursuing the Craft, period, beverages, which is going to be uh, Leif uh, Halverson uh, talking about period beverages, tea, coffee, switchel, alcoholic libations, including shrub and beer. Um, so yeah, that should be fun. Uh, Saturday, November 5th, we'll have the salon again at 11 a.m. where people basically bring a project and hang out on Zoom and, and talk about stuff and, and make things. Uh, and then at 1 p.m., 
is when this book club is going to happen. So uh, come and hang out after you've listened to Sock Ma P 1 p.m. on Saturday, and we're just going to chat about, um, you know, what people's thoughts are about this collection. I, you know, last time we did this, I had some discussion questions. I'll have some for this too, but they're not, I mean, Sock account, I think, speaks for itself a, a lot more. Uh, and then at 3 p.m., I'm doing another talk on Isabel Gunn or John Fubister. So a closer look at an Arcadian laborer. Um, I wound up writing a chapter of my dissertation on John Fubister or Isabel Gunn. Um, so we, I'll be kind of presenting that information at 3 p.m. Uh, essentially, lots of people talk about Isabel Gunn as Isabel Gunn and have kind of ignored the possibility that they may have been trans and you know, kind of trying to live as a man, but um, obviously the circumstances um, that they experienced made that uh, impossible uh, once they were discovered. Um, but apart from kind of exploring a broader queer history of like the Atlantic and trans people in the Atlantic world, uh, I also found some kind of interesting stuff about Isabel Gunn once uh, they returned to, to Orkney. Uh, anyway, so I'll be talking about that at 3 p.m. Uh, and then Sunday, November 6th, the curator of the Sault Ste. Marie Museum, Nicole Curry, is going to be giving a talk on the fur trade in Sault Ste. Marie. So you can check that out at 11 a.m. on Sunday. And then at 1 p.m., uh, Michelle Beauvais is going to be talking about the curiosities of finger weaving. Um, and to finish us up at 3 p.m., Jeff Pavlik is going to be talking about maple sugaring. So uh, going to be a good weekend. Uh, so check it out. I'll have a link in the show notes. You can kind of register for all these things. And it's going to be great to see everyone. Uh, okay, so let's get started with Sakamapi, huh? So like I said, I, I like to give some sort of discussion questions just to kind of help guide your reading. Um, I assigned this uh, text to my undergrad students in Intro to American Indian Studies this semester, and these are the questions I asked them uh, to kind of think about while reading it, which is, you know, what can we learn from Sakamapi about the following topics? How warfare changed in the Northern Plains with the arrival of guns and horses? Uh, what were some of the motivations for carrying out war between the Shoshone, who... Um, Sakamapi calls snake Indians, and the Pagan, or Blackfeet, and uh, Nathaway, or Cree. Um, and then, how did the fur trade fit into and change Sakamapi and his community's lives? Uh, I think that's a thing to think about. Um, and then, what was the effect of smallpox on the lives of these people? What changed after smallpox? And where did they get smallpox, and how did they interpret it? These are really, I'm, I'm counting on everybody that's listening and participating in that book club having many other things that they... Uh, are interested in the discussion questions like these are geared this is geared towards freshmen to get them to kind of read with a purpose uh, but it does give you a heads up of kind of what's coming in this record like he talks about warfare before guns before horses and after he talks about disease and what kind of effect that had on them as a community and i i really well i mean i'll, I'll keep it for the discussion but i really love how the fur trade starts to become a heck of a lot more important, I think, um, after smallpox. And Sakamapi, his account really kind of helped me understand why that was the case, like how the fur trade become became less of a uh, luxury thing and, and really kind of vital for survival in, in a sense. But uh, anyway, it's a, it's a stellar account. I'll just be reading it to you. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction episode, you know, I'm a pretty good Ojibwe speaker, um, but... 
Sakamapi is Cree, and he lived most of his life with the Blackfeet, and this is all being written down by David Thompson uh, in kind of his recollections. He's writing this around 1850 from an event that happened in the 1780s, probably, maybe 1790s, and uh, that's all to say that uh, there are some pronunciations that I am going to get wrong, uh, likely because I'm trying to interpret it through three or four different people. I think the big thing is just uh, Sakamapi talks about the Snake Indians a lot, those are Shoshone. The Pagan are Blackfeet. Uh, the Nathaway or Nahathaway, Thompson spells variously is Cree, um, and I think that's I think that's about it. Um, anyway, so yeah, here it is as a bit of a uh, kind of trial run audiobook, and I'll let it play out, and then uh, we'll kind of that'll, that'll be the end of the episode. I really hope to see everyone on Saturday, November fifth, for our book club meeting. Uh, one last reminder, it is at 1 p.m. So, yeah, have a listen, read over the text, take some notes, and come and hang out, and let's talk about Sakamapi and what life was like for Brigand folks before the fur trade. So, anyway, cheers, everyone. The following is a reading of David Thompson's narrative, the version published by the Champlain Society, edited by J.B. Terrell in 1916. Chapter 22. Plain Indians. The Indians of the Plains are of various tribes and of several languages, which have no affinity with each other. The Stone Indians are a large tribe of the Sioux Nation, and speak a dialect differing little from the Sioux tongue, the softest and most pleasing to the ear of all the Indian languages. They've always been and are in strict alliance with the Nahathways and their hunting grounds are on the left bank of the Saskatchewan, and eastward and southward to the upper part of the Red River, and their number 400 tents, each containing about eight souls, and all 3,200. The Fall Indians, their former residence, was on the rapids of the Saskatchewan, about a hundred miles above Cumberland House. They speak a harsh language, which no other tribe attempts to learn, and number about 70 tents at ten souls of each tent. They are a tall and well-made muscular people, their countenances manly but not handsome. Their chief was of a bad character, and brought them into so many quarrels with their allies that they had to leave their country and wander to the right bank of the Missouri, to near the Mandan villages. The Sissis are about ninety tents, and may number about six hundred and fifty souls. They are brave and manly, tall and well-limbed, but their face is somewhat flat, and cannot be called handsome. They speak a very guttural tongue, which no one attempts to learn. The next of the three tribes of the Piagan, called Piaganakun, the Blood Indians, Kinakun, and the Blackfeets, Saxakun, these all speak the same tongue, and their hunting grounds are contiguous to one another. These were formerly on the Bow River, but now extend southward to the Missouri. All these plains, which are now the hunting grounds of the above Indians, were formerly in full possession of the Kootenays, northward, the next to Salish and their allies, and the most southern the Snake Indians, and their tribes now driven across the mountains. The Pagan, in whose tent I passed the winter, was an old man of at least 75 to 80 years of age, his height about six feet, two or three inches, broad shoulders, strong-limbed, his hair gray and plentiful, forehead high and nose prominent, his face slightly marked with the smallpox, and altogether his countenance mild, and even sometimes playful. Although his step was firm and he rode with ease, he no longer hunted. This he left to his sons. His name was Sakamapi, or Young Man. His account of former times went back to about 1730, and was as follows. The Pagans were 
always the frontier tribe, and upon whom the Snake Indians made their attacks. These latter were very numerous, even without their allies, and the Pagans had to send messengers among us to procure help. Two of them came to the camp of my father, and I was then about his age, pointing to a lad of about sixteen years. He promised to come and bring some of his people, the Nahathaways, with him, for I am myself of that people, and not to those with whom I am. I am. My father brought about twenty warriors with him. There were a few guns amongst us, but very little ammunition, and they were left to hunt for the families. Our weapon was a lance, mostly pointed with iron, some few of stone, a bow and a quiver of arrows. With The bows were made of a lark. The length came up to the chin, the quiver had about fifty arrows, of which ten had iron points. The others were headed with stone. He carried his knife on his breast and his axe in his belt. Such was my father's weapons, and those with him had much the same weapons. I had a bow and arrows and a knife, of which I was very proud. We came to the Pagans and their allies. They were camped in the plains on the left bank of the river, the north side, and were a great many. We were feasted, a great war tent was made, and few days passed in speeches, feasting, and dances. A war chief was elected by their chiefs, and we got ready to march. Our spies had been out and had seen a large camp of the Snake Indians on the plains of the Eagle Hill, and we had to cross river in canoes and on rafts, which we were carefully secured for our retreat. When we had crossed and numbered our men, we were about 350 warriors. This he showed by counting every finger to be ten and holding up his hands three times and then on one hand. They had their scouts out and came to meet us. Both parties made a great show of their numbers, and I thought that they were more numerous than ourselves. After some singing and dancing, they sat down to the ground and placed their large shields before them, which covered them. We did the same, but our shields were not so many, and some of our shields had to shelter two men. Theirs were all placed touching each other, their bows were not so long as ours, but of better wood, and the back covered with the sinews of the bisons, which made them very elastic, and the arrows went a long way and whizzed about, as his balls do from guns. They were all headed with a sharp, smooth black stone, flint, which broke when it struck anything. Iron-headed arrows did not go through their shields, but stuck in them. On both sides, several were wounded, but none lay on the ground, and at night put an end to the battle without a scalp being taken on either side. And in those days, such was the result, unless one party was more numerous than the other. The great mischief of war, then, was, as now, by attacking and destroying small camps of ten to thirty tents, which are obliged to separate for hunting. I grew to be a man, became a skillful and fortunate hunter, and my relations procured me a wife. She was young and handsome, and we were fond of each other. We had passed a winter together when messengers came from our allies to claim assistance. By this time the affairs of both parties had much changed. We had more guns and iron-headed arrows than before, but our enemies, the Snake Indians and their allies, had Mr. Tim, or big dogs, and his horses, on which they rode swift as the deer, on which they dashed at the Pagans, and with their stolen Pekegamons knocked them on the head, and they had lost several of their best men. This news we did not well comprehend, and it alarmed us. For we had no idea of horses, and could not make out what they were. Only three of us went, and I should not have gone had not my wife's relations frequently intimated that her father's medicine bag would be honored by the scalp of a snake Indian. When we came to our allies, the great war tent was made, with speeches, feasting, and dances as before, and when the war chief had viewed us all, it was found between us and the stone Indians we had ten guns, and each of us about thirty balls and powder for the war, and we were considered the strength of the battle. After a few days' march, our scouts brought us word that the enemy was near in a large war party, but had no horses with them. For at that time, they had very few of them. When we came to meet each other, as usual, each displayed their numbers, weapons, and shields, and all on which they were superior to us, except our guns, which were not shown, but kept in their leathern cases. 
And if we had shown them, they would have taken them for long clubs. For a long time, they held us in suspense. A tall chief was forming a strong party to make an attack on our center, and the others to enter into combat with those opposite to them. We prepared for the battle as best we could. Those of us who had guns stood in the front line, and each of us had two balls in his mouth and a load of powder in his left hand to reload. We noticed that they had a great many short stone clubs for close combat, which is a dangerous weapon, and they had made a bold attack on us. We must have been defeated, as they were more numerous and better armed than we were, for we could have fired our guns no more than twice, and were at a loss as what to do in the wide plain, and each chief encouraged his men to stand firm. Our eyes were all on the tall chief and his motions, which appeared to be contrary to the advice of several old chiefs. All this time we were about the strong flight of an arrow from each other. At length, the tall chief retired, and they formed their long, usual line by placing their shields on the ground to touch each other, the shield having a breadth full three feet or more. We sat down opposite to them. Most of us waited for the night to make a hasty retreat. The war chief was close to us, anxious to see the effect of our guns. The lines were too far asunder for us to make a sure shot, but, he re but we requested him to close the line to about sixty yards, which was gradually done, and lying flat on the ground behind the shields, we watched our for our opportunity when they drew their bows to shoot at us. Their bodies were then exposed, and each of us, as opportunity offered, fired with deadly aim, and either killed or severely wounded everyone we aimed at. The war chief was highly pleased and the Snake Indians, finding so many killed and wounded, kept themselves behind their shields. The war chief then desired we would spread ourselves by twos throughout the line, which we did, and our shots caused consternation and dismay along their whole line. The battle had begun about noon, and the sun was not yet half down when we perceived some of them had crawled away from their shields and were taking flight. The war chief, seeing this, went along the line and spoke to every chief to keep his men ready for a charge of the whole line of the enemy at which he would give the signal. This was done by himself stepping in front with his spear and calling in them to follow him as he rushed on their line, and in an instant the whole of us followed him. The greater part of the enemy took to flight, but some fought bravely, and we lost more than ten killed and many wounded. Part of us pursued and killed a few, but the chase had soon to be given over, for at the body of every snake Indian killed, there were five or six of us trying to get a scalp or part of his clothing, his weapons, or something as a trophy of the battle. As there were only three of us and seven of our friends, the stone Indians, we did not interfere and got nothing. The next morning, the war chief made a speech, praising their bravery and telling them to make a large war tent to commemorate their victory, to which they directly set to work, and by noon it was finished. The war chief now called on all the other chiefs to assemble their men and come to the tent. In a short time they came. All those who had lost relations had their faces blackened, those who killed an enemy or wished to be thought so had their faces blackened with red streaks on the face, and those who had no pretensions to the one or the other had their faces red with ochre. We did not paint our faces until the war chief told us to paint our foreheads and eyes black, the rest of the face of dark red ochre, as having carried guns to distinguish us from all the rest. Those who had scalps now came forward, with the scalps neatly stretched in a round willow, with a handle to the frame, they appeared to be more than fifty, and excited loud shouts and the war whoop of victory. When this was over, the war chief told them that if anyone had a right to the scalp of an enemy as a war trophy, it ought to be us, who, with our guns, had gained the victory. When, from the numbers of our enemies, we were anxious to leave the field of battle, and that ten scalps must be given to us, this was soon collected, and he gave to each of us a scalp. All those whose faces were blackened for the loss of relations or friends now came forward to claim the other scalps to be held in their hands for the benefit of their departed relations and friends. This occasioned a long conversation with those who had the scalps. At length they came forward to the war chief. Those who had taken the trophy from the head of the enemy they had killed said the souls of the enemy that each of us has slain belong to us, 
and we have given them to our relations, which are in the other world to be their slaves, and we are contented. Those who had scalps taken from the enemy that were found dead under the shields were at a loss what to say, and not one could declare he had actually slain the enemy whose scalp he held, and yet wanted to send their souls to be the slaves of their departed relations. This caused much discussion, and the old chiefs decided that it could not be done, and that no one could send the soul of any to be a slave in the other world except the warrior who actually killed him. The scalps you hold are trophies of the battle, but they give you no right to the soul of the enemy from which whom it is taken. He alone who kills the enemy has a right to the soul, and to give it to the slave to whom he pleases. So this decision did not please them, and they were obliged to abide by it. The old chiefs then returned to us, and praising our conduct in the battle, said, Each of you have slain two enemies in battle, if not more. You will return to your own people, and as you are a young man, consent with the old men to whom you shall give the souls of those you have slain. Until which, let them wander about the other world. The chiefs wished us to stay, and promised each of us a handsome young wife, and to adopt us as their sons. But we told them we were anxious to see our relations and people, after which perhaps we might come back. After all the war ceremonies were over... We pitched away in large camps, with the women and children on the frontier of the Snake Indian country, hunting the bison and red deer, which were numerous, and we were anxious to see a horse, of which we had heard so much. At last, as the leaves were falling, we heard that one was killed by an arrow shot into his belly, but the Snake Indian that rode him got away. Numbers of us went to see him, and we all admired him, and he put us in mind of a stag that had lost his horns, but we did not know the name to give him. But as he was a slave to man, like the dog which carried our things, he was named the Big Dog. We set off for our people, and on the fourth day came to a camp of stone Indians, the relations of our companions, who received us well, and we stayed a few days. The scalps were placed on poles, and the men and women danced around them, singing to the sound of rattles, tambours, and flutes. When night came, one of our party, in a low voice, repeated to the chief the narrative of the battle, which he, in a loud voice, walking about the tents, repeated to the whole camp after which the chiefs called those who followed them to a feast. And the battle was always a subject to the conversation and driving the Snake Indians to a great distance. There were now only three of us to proceed, and upon inquiry we learned a camp of our people in the Hathaways were a day's journey from us. And in the evening we came to them, and all our news had to be told, with the usual songs and dances, but my mind was wholly bent on making grand appearance before my wife and her parents, and presenting to her father the scalp I had to ornament his medicine bag. Before we came to the camp, we had dressed ourselves and painted each other's faces to appear to the best advantage, and were proud of ourselves. On seeing some of my friends, I got away and went to them, and by inquiries learned that my parents had gone to the low countries of the lakes, and that before I was three moons away, my wife had given herself to another man, and that her father could not prevent her, and they were all to the northward, there to pass the winter." At this unlooked-for news, I was quite disheartened. I said nothing, but my heart was swollen with anger and revenge, and I passed the night scheming mischief. In the morning, my friends reasoned with me upon my vexation about a worthless woman, and that it was beneath a warrior's anger. Beneath a warrior anger. There was no want of woman to replace her, and a better wife could be got. Others said that if I had stayed with my wife instead of running away to kill snake Indians, nothing of this would have happened. My anger moderated, I gave the scalp to one of my friends to give to my father, and renouncing my people, I left them, and came to the Pagans, who gave me a hearty welcome, and upon my informing them of my intention to remain with them, the great chief gave me his eldest daughter to be my wife. She is a sister of the present chief, and as you see now, an old woman. The terror of the battle, and of our guns, has prevented any more general battles, and our wars have since been carried out by ambuscade and surprise of small camps, in which 
we have greatly the advantage from the guns, arrow shots of iron, long knives, slap lanets, and axes from the traders. While we have these weapons, the Snake Indians have none, but what few they sometimes take from one of our small camps, which they have destroyed, and they have no traders among them. We thus continued to advance through the fine plains to the Stag River when death came, all, came over all of us, and swept away more than half of us by the smallpox, of which we knew nothing until it brought death among us. We caught it from the Snake Indians. Our scouts were out for our security when some returned and informed us of a considerable camp which was too large to attack and something very suspicious about it. From a high knoll, they had a good view of the camp but saw none of the men hunting or going about. There were a few horses, but no one came to them and a herd of bisons were feeding close to the camp with other herds near. This somewhat alarmed us as a stratagem of war, and our warriors thought the camp had a larger, not far off. So that if this camp was attacked, which was strong enough to offer a desperate resistance, the other would come to their assistance and overpower us, it had been done once by them, and in which we lost many of our men. The council ordered the scouts to return and go beyond this camp to make sure there was no other. In the meantime, we advanced our camp. The scouts returned and said no other tents were near, and the camp appeared in the same state as before. Our scouts had been doing too much about their camp and were seen. They expected what would follow, and all those that could walk as soon as night came on went away. Next morning, at the dawn of the day, we attacked the tents, and with our sharp flat daggers and knives, cut through the tents and entered for the fight. But our war hoop instantly stopped. Our eyes were appalled with terror. There was no one to fight. No one to fight with but the dead and the dying, each a mass of corruption. We did not touch them, but left the tents and held a council on what to be done. We all thought the bad spirit had made himself master of the camp and destroyed them. It was agreed to take some of the best of the tents and any other plunder that was clean and good, which we did, and also took away the few horses they had and returned to our camp. The second day after, this dreadful disease broke out in our camp, and spread from one tent to another, as if the bad spirit carried it. We had no belief that one man could give it to another, any more than a wounded man could give his wound to another. We did not suffer so much as those that were near the river into which they rushed and died. We had only a little brook, and about one-third of us died. But in some of the other camps there were tents in which everyone died. When at length it left us, and we moved about to find our people, it was no longer with the song and the dance, but with tears, shrieks, and howlings of despair for those who would never return to us. War was no longer thought of, and we had enough to do to hunt and make provisions for our families, for in our sickness we had consumed all our dried provisions. But the bison and red deer were also gone. We did not see one half of what was before. Whether they had gone, whither they had gone, we could not tell. We believed that the good spirit had forsaken us, and allowed the bad spirit to become our master. What little we could spare, we offered to the bad spirit, to let us alone and go to our enemies. To the good spirit we offered feathers, branches of trees, and sweet-smelling grass. Our hearts were low and dejected, and we shall never be again the same people. To hunt for our families was our sole occupation, and kill beavers, wolves, and foxes to trade our necessaries. And we thought of war no more, and perhaps would have made peace with them. For instantly... And perhaps would have made peace with them, for they had suffered dreadfully as well as us, and had left all this fine country of the Bow River to us. We were quiet for about two or three winters, and although we several times saw their young men on the scout, we took no notice of them, as we all require young men to look about the country, that our families may sleep in safety, and that we may know where to hunt. But the Snake Indians are a bad people. Even their allies, the Salish and the Kootenays, cannot trust them, and do not camp with them. 
No one believes what they say, and they are very treacherous. Everyone says that they are rightly named the Snake People, for which their tongue is forked, like that of a rattlesnake, from which they have their name. I think it was about the third falling of the leaves of the trees that five of our tents pitched away to the valleys of the Rocky Mountains, up a branch of this river, the Bow, to hunt the bighorn deer, or mountain sheep, as their horns make fine, large bowls and are easily cleaned. They were to return on the first snow. All was quiet, and we waited for them until the snow lay on the ground, and we got alarmed for their safety. And about thirty warriors set off to seek them. It was only two days' march, and in the evening they came to the camp. It had been destroyed by a large party of snake Indians who left their marks of snakes, heads painted black on sticks, they had set up. The bodies were all there, with the women and children but scalped, and partly devoured by the wolves and dogs. The party on their return related the fate of our people, and other camps on hearing the news came and joined us. A war tent was made, and the chiefs and warriors assembled. The red pipes were filled with tobacco, but before being lighted, an old chief arose, and beckoning to the man who had the fire to keep back, addressed us, saying, I am an old man, my hair is white, and I have seen much. Formerly we were healthy and strong in many of us. Now we are few to what we were, and the great sickness may come again. We were fond of war. Even our women flattered us to war and nothing was thought of but scouts for singing and dancing. Now think of what has happened to us all, by destroying each other and doing the work of the bad spirit. The great spirit became angry with our making the ground red with blood. He called to the bad spirit to punish and destroy us, but in doing so, not to let one spot of the ground to be red with blood. And the bad spirit did it, as we all know. Now we must revenge the death of our people and make the snake Indians feel the effects of our guns and other weapons. But the young women must all be saved, and if any has a babe at the breast, it must not be taken from her nor hurt. All the boys and lads that have no weapons must not be killed, but brought to our camps, and be adopted amongst us, to be our people, and make us more numerous and stronger than we are. Thus the great spirit will see that, when we make war, we kill only those who are dangerous to us, and make no more ground red with blood than we can help, and the bad spirit will have no more power on us. Everyone signified his assent to the old chief, and since that time it has sometimes been acted on, but more with the women than the boys. And while it weakens our enemies, makes us stronger. A red pipe was now lighted, and the same old chief, taking it, gave three whiffs to the great spirit, praying him to the kind, to be kind to them and not forsake them. Then three whiffs to the sun, the same to the sky, the earth, and the four winds. The pipe was passed round, and other pipes lighted. The war chief then arose, and said, Remember, my friends, that while we are smoking, the bodies of our friends and relations are being devoured by wolves and dogs, and their souls are sent by the snake Indians to be slaves of their relations in the other world. We have made no war on them for more than three summers, and we had hoped to live quietly until our young men had grown up. For we are not many, as we used to be. But the snake Indians, the race of liars, whose tongues are like rattlesnakes, have already made war on us. We can no longer be quiet. The country where they are now are is but little known to us, and if they did not feel themselves strong, they would not have dared have come so far to destroy our people. We must be courageous and active, but also cautious. And my advice is that three scout parties, each of about ten warriors with a chief at their head, take the three different directions and cautiously view the country and not go too far. For enough of our people are already devoured by the wolves, and our business is revenge without losing our people. After five days, the scout parties returned without seeing the camp of an enemy, or any fresh traces of them. Our war chief, Kutnayape, 
was now distressed. He had expected some camp would have been seen, but he concluded the Snake Indians had gone to the southward to their allies to show the scalps they had taken and to make their songs and dances for the victory. And in his speech, he denounced the constant war on them until they were exterminated. Affairs were in this state when we arrived, and the narrative of the old man having given us the above information, he lighted his pipe, and smoking it out said, The Snake Indians are no match for us. They have no guns and are no match for us. But they have the power to vex us and make us afraid for the small hunting parties that hunt for the small deer, for dresses, and the bighorn for the same, and for bulls. They keep us always on our guard. A few days after our arrival, the death cry was given, and the men all started out to the tents, and our tent mate... With his gun in his hand, the cry was from a young man who held his bow and arrows, and showed us one of his thighs torn by a grizzled bear, by which had killed two of his companions. The old man called for his powder horn and shot bag, and seeing the priming of his gun in good order, he set off with the young man for the bear, which was at a short distance. They found him devouring one of the dead. The moment he saw... They found him devouring one of the dead. The moment he saw them, he sat up on his hind legs, showing his teeth and long clawed paws in this, his usual position to defend his prey. His head is a bad mark, but his breast offers a direct kill to the heart, through which the old man sent his ball and killed him. The two young men who were destroyed by the bear had each two iron-shot arrows, and the camp being near, they attacked the bear for his skin and claws, but unfortunately the arrows stuck in the bones of his ribs and only irritated him. He sprung on the first, and with one of his dreadful forepaws tore out his bowels and three of his ribs. The second he seized with his paws, and almost crushed him to death, and threw him down. When the third, Indian hearing their cries, came to their assistance, and sent an arrow, which only wounded him in the neck, for which the bear chased him, and slightly tore one of his thighs. This poor fellow was still alive, and knew his parents, in whose arms he expired. The bear, for the mischief he had done, was condemned to be burnt to ashes, the claws of his forepaws very sharp and long. The young man wanted for a collar, but it was not granted. Those that had burned the bear watched until nothing but ashes remained. The two young men were each wrapped up separately in bison robes, laid side by side on the ground, and covered with logs of wood and stones in which we assisted. By the advice of the civil chief and his speeches in the early part of every night, we pitched southward to about 80 miles beyond the Bow River. We had a few showers of snow, which soon melted. The herds of bisons were sufficient for daily use, but not enough for dried provisions. However, a council was held, and as they did not intend to go further south towards the Snake Indians, but after hunting about where they were for a moon, returned to the northward to trade their furs, whether it would not be advisable to know if their enemies were near them or not. After consultation, it was agreed to send out a war chief, with about fifty warriors, to examine the country for a few days' journey. The chief soon collected his warriors, and having examined their arms, and having seen that everyone had two pairs of shoes, some dry provisions, and other necessaries, in the evening the principal war chief addressed the chief at the head of the party, reminding him that the warriors now accompanying him would steadily follow him, that they were sent to destroy their enemies, not to be killed themselves, and made the slaves of their enemies, that he must be wise and cautious, and bring back the warriors entrusted to his care. Among them was the eldest son of the old man, in whose tent we lived. They all marched off very quietly, as if for hunting. After they were gone, the old man said it was not a war party, but one of those they frequently sent, under guidance of those who had showed courage and conduct in going to war, for we cannot afford to lose our people. We are too few, and these expeditions ensure our men long marches and to suffer hunger and thirst. At the end of about twenty days, they returned with about thirty-five horses in tolerable condition, and fifteen fine mules, which they had brought away from a large camp of Snake Indians. The old man's son gave him a long account of the business. On the sixth evening, the scouts ahead came and informed the chief that 
we might be near their camp. We must be near a camp, as they had seen horses feeding. Night came on, and we went aside to a wood of cotton and poplar trees on the edge of a brook. In the morning, some of us climbed the trees and passed the day, but saw nothing. In the night, we went higher up the brook, and as it was shoal, we walked in it for some distance to another wood, and there lay down. Early the next morning, a few of us advanced through the wood, but we had not gone far before we heard the women with their dogs come for wood for fuel. Some of us returned to the chief, and the rest watched the women. It was near midday before they all went away. They had only stone axes and stone clubs to break the wood, and they took only what was dry, but cut none down. Their numbers showed us that the camp must be large, and sometimes some of them came so close to us that we were afraid of being discovered. The chief now called us round him and advised us to be very cautious, as it was plain we were in the vicinity of a large camp, and manage our little provisions, for we must not expect to get any more until we retreated. If we fire a gun at the deer, it will be heard, and if we put an arrow in a deer and it gets away, and they see the deer, it will alarm them, and we shall not be able to get away. My intention is to have something to show our people, and when we retreat, take as many horses as we can with us to accomplish which we must have a fair opportunity, and in the meantime, be hungry, which we can stand some time, as we have plenty of water to drink. We were getting tired, and our solace was of an evening to look at the horses and mules. At length he said to us, get ready, and pointing to the top of the mountain said, see the blue sky is gone, and a heavy storm is there, which will soon reach us. And so it did. About sunset we proceeded through the wood to the horses, which lines, and with lines we carried, each helping the other. We soon had a horse or a mule to ride on. We wanted to drive some with us, but the chief would not allow it. There was yet daylight when we left the wood and entered the plains, but the storm of wind was very strong and on our backs, and at the gallop or trot, so as not to tire our horses, we continued to midnight, when we came to a brook with plenty of grass and let them get a good feed, after which we held on to the sun rising. When seeing a fine low ground, we stayed the rest of the day, keeping watch until night, when we returned and continued our journey. The storm lasted two days and greatly helped us. The old man told his son, who, in his relation, had intimated he did not think the chief very brave, that it was very fortunate that he was under such a chief, who had acted so wisely and cautiously, for had he acted otherwise, not one of you would have returned, and some young men coming into the tent whom he supposed might have the same opinions as his son, he told them that it required no great bravery for a war party to attack a small camp, which they were sure to master, but it required great courage and conduct to be for several days in the face of a large camp undiscovered, and each of you to bring away a horse from the enemy instead of leaving your own scalps.